This is Kirk Kovac. I'm here for Politics NC in the People's House for once with Representative Greg Meyer. Greg, how are you? Doing great, Kirk. Glad to have you here in the General Assembly. Yep. Well, it's great to be here, and I just told you I apologize if I sound a little under the weather today, but I'm almost good. I'm almost back to neutral, so hopefully by the end of this I'll have a voice. But first and foremost, I want to ask you about 2018 because talked to a couple people about those elections and the gains Democrats made, but I believe that you have a bit more insight into what changed in 2018 to give Democrats a bit more leverage in the General Assembly. So could you maybe walk through briefly what went well in 2018 and then we can dig into some specifics? Sure. So Democrats knew that 2018 was going to be what we call a blue moon election once every 12 years when there's no major statewide races on the ballot and it's really legislative races at the top of the ticket. That's an opportunity to focus on legislative races in a way that usually doesn't happen, but it's also a risk because most people don't even know who their state legislator is and they're not motivated by that. So blue moon elections tend to be a turnout game of who whose base is most enthusiastic, and that's often driven by national factors, not state legislative factors. So we had to work through all of that. We decided early on to have a strategy where we tried to run a competitive race in every single legislative seat. We managed to recruit 170 candidates for the first time in history, um, filling out the docket in both the House and the Senate. And then that really set the tone for us that we were going to try to have an energized base that would focus on local elections and uh, and help us swing the legislature. Luckily um, for us, uh, there have been some state issues that have given people a real sense that the legislature matters, education, HB2, uh, a whole range of things, so that we had some stuff to campaign on, I guess luckily or unluckily, I said luckily, you could look at it either way. And then we had the national uh, um, situation where we were hoping that there would be an anti-Trump wave that would really give us a giant boost. In the end, what happened was in the House, we picked up 10 seats. The Senate picked up six seats. We broke the supermajority in both chambers. If I look under the hood, I would tell you that I think what happened was uh, we saw huge Democratic gains based on um, having an energized electorate and having the most organized and comprehensive legislative campaign strategy that Democrats have run in a long, long time. Running people everywhere. We had more money than we've ever had before. And so we were able to run really competitive races where we needed to win and stretch the field, uh, which makes a difference to you know things statewide. We could have picked up more seats if the Trump base wasn't also energized. In the end of the, of the campaign season, um, Kavanaugh hearings, and the, uh, the, the mythical caravan story really energized the Trump base. If they would have had a few more people stay home, uh, we might have been able to get close to taking the majority. But as it is, we did a pretty good job of breaking the supermajority. Well, when you, when you talk about getting you know, the respective bases out, to what degree, and I'm not sure how much you can tell uh, of this, but to what degree did Democrats get people who might not usually vote for Democrats? Was, was there a large contingency of maybe moderate Republicans that voted for Democrats, or was it just a numbers game of there were more Democrats who voted than Republicans? So we saw a good boost in Democratic turnout for an average off-year election, but we also saw that we were winning independent voters or swing voters, particularly in suburban areas. And so we picked up seats in Wake County and Mecklenburg County, where our two biggest areas of, of pickups. 
but in the rural areas, we struggled. We didn't get the boost that we needed either in terms of our turnout or getting um, people to swing towards us. And so when we look ahead, if Democrats are going to try and play for the majority in 2020, our biggest challenge is going to be in um, really kind of exurban and, and rural seats that don't have as quickly changing demographics as we've seen in Mecklenburg and Wake County. How, how we, we had a very narrow loss in Alamance County. There's a lot of young families moving in there. Um, it's not really the Alamance County of old. Does that mean that that seat swings our direction? That might be one of the easier ones to pick up next. But uh, there are some seats that Democrats hold that held as recently as 2014 to 2016 um, in, say, Harnett and Lee County or in Columbus County or in um, uh, uh, Granville and Person Counties. Those are seats that Democrats held not too long ago, but that look like they're really difficult for us to pick up right now because we haven't been able to bring people back in rural areas. With the success in the last election, I know a lot of those areas, specifically Wake and Mecklenburg, where Democrats really did well in the suburban areas and, and beat Republicans that had been there, uh, that beat the Republican incumbents. Do you see there being a path to maintaining those seats because I don't think it is set in stone that those are blue seats now. Like this is not the new permanent um, base level for Democrats. Like how do they move forward and not only when, you know, future elections expand those gains, but how do you keep the ones you've already gotten? Well, frankly, I'd say if the Republicans want to win those seats back, they have to change something. They're still in charge in the legislature and still have power to set the agenda for the state of North Carolina if they want it. You know, the governor has a veto now, but that's it. And so if the Republicans want to win back seats in Wake and Mecklenburg, then they need to expand Medicaid because health care was the number one issue. They need to make significant investments in education and they need to stop hammering the state on the revenue side because people in those areas expect certain things from the state for their kids and their families and the republican uh, taxation plan is just leaving us without enough revenue to be able to do what people expect for kind of basic government services right now with medicaid as sort of the premier legislative uh, goal this uh, sessions almost said semester i've been in school for too long um do you think that a successful Medicaid expansion, well, first of all, what does that look like? What sort of um, restrictions or, because it probably won't be just a clean expansion, I think, as Democrats might like, what sort of work requirements, things like that might we expect if it's going to pass? And then is that the biggest policy that Democrats can take and either say, this is why I deserve to keep this seat and, and how I've served you well? or for other Democrats who might be challenging Republicans to say, this is what a Democratic legislature can do moving forward. If we actually have the majority, we can do this and better. Healthcare is the number one issue right now. The single biggest thing we can do for the healthcare system is to expand Medicaid, not just because it increases healthcare access for half a million North Carolinians, but because it stabilizes the entire healthcare market, right? We stop having hospitals go out of business, the existing hospitals, bottom line gets short up, then we can take care of all kinds of other health care policy issues after we do Medicaid expansion first. Democrats have introduced a bill that is a clean expansion that does not raise taxes one cent on North Carolinians. I would love to see that go forward. I don't think that the partisanship in the General Assembly is going to result in that going forward. So when we get to a Medicaid uh, policy discussion with 
between Democrats and Republicans, I expect that there will probably be some negotiations on things like work requirements, um, probably on certificate of need reform, probably on uh, scope of practice. Those have been long lingering issues in the legislature that uh, are related, but not the same as Medicaid expansion. And so we'll have to figure out like what, what are the areas that we're willing to give on in order to get healthcare access for people. And Democrats are ready to come to the table and have those conversations and even to go back and defend to our people some of the things that we gave up in exchange for getting what we know the benefits of expansion are. Uh, I, I mean, thus far, we've not seen the Republicans be ready to come to the table on that, but the session is young. we got plenty of time to go. I think they're figuring out what they want to do, and I look forward to talking with them when they're ready. I hope that we can have a real conversation. Well, I know one of the big selling points for Medicaid expansion is how rural hospitals are languishing right now and then closing and, and how it would be uh, a godsend for a lot of them. Do you think that is a way for Democrats to appeal to rural areas uh, with health care? Is that a, an issue? Because I, I know I think those areas at least socially, do not really align with Democrats, but do you think from a, like a clear policy issue that might be a winning topic for those areas? Absolutely. I mean, rural Americans are um, overwhelmingly in support of kind of populist and progressive economic policy. And healthcare is a pocketbook issue to people in rural areas. My district has Caswell County and Orange County in it. Orange County is probably the best off medical county in the state. Uh, I'm not sure on the rankings, but it's got to be up there. Caswell is not. I mean, Caswell is a poor rural community with a, a couple of small health clinics. And when I talk to people there, um, what they they really think about healthcare in terms of bottom line, how much does it cost? And not just how much does the procedure cost or how much does the doctor visit cost, but how much does it cost to drive to a doctor or you know go to the hospital when they live an hour away from one? And so I do think that there is... A, a pocketbook way of talking about healthcare expenses that we can use for all North Carolinians, including rural North Carolinians. And when that moves, even, you know, even beyond what are you paying for healthcare to, is your hospital going to close or not? Then I think rural North Carolinians will be highly engaged on this issue. And, uh, and, and the Republicans need to understand that um, their people need this. And I hope their people will communicate to them, do what it takes to keep my hospital open. Do what it takes to keep my healthcare costs down. That I think right now people are more worried about the amount that they're spending on healthcare than the amount that they're spending on taxes. When you talked about the decisions that you know Republicans will have to make as far as how they want to move forward on Medicaid, do you think that there are places where there is a lot of bipartisan support for different policies? I, I'm thinking today. Um, I know there was uh, independent redistricting was was brought out. There's a press conference, and that was bipartisan. So, do you think there's an appetite for uh, a fix to gerrymandering now that it's clear you know, the Republicans don't just maintain the supermajority they've enjoyed for the last was it, eight years or so? So, in the House, there are Republicans who believe that we should have an expansion of health care, and there are Republicans who believe that we should have nonpartisan redistricting, um, and. You know, the timing on some of that is such that we're, they're looking down the barrel of a gun on the 2020 elections, worried about losing their majorities, trying to figure out, you know, what comes next. And so I'm glad that that pressure is bringing them to the table on those two issues. 
I think everybody who follows the legislature knows that even if we can get agreement on those things in the House, the real battle is going to be with the Republican-led Senate and whether or not the Senate will come to the table on any of those things at all. On redistricting, I think that uh, pending court cases will also have a huge external pressure on the legislature, and we're probably not going to run a re- you know, The redistricting bill got introduced today as a bipartisan approach to, to create a nonpartisan redistricting process. Um, if I don't think that bill is going to be on the floor next week. But I think if there are some court rulings either uh, at the federal level or at North Carolina courts that look like they're going to take away uh, some of the ability of majority parties to do partisan gerrymandering, then we might see a lot more Republicans come to the table quickly to try and create a neutral system for, uh, for 2021. Do you see big strides to be made in education spending this year, or do you think that might be viewed as a zero-sum game with Medicaid expansion? Well, I'm really disappointed that we've seen Republican leadership already pit those things against one another and talk about it as, as you know, really a, a limited pie without looking at where we are in revenues. And then there are also uh, a lot of rumors circulating right now about additional tax cut schemes that the Republicans have, um, particularly a, a massive approach that they would introduce to reduce corporate taxes. Corporations are paying about half of what individuals pay on income tax right now, and they're looking at another you know, corporate tax thing without replacing that revenue some other way. And so that, that means that there's not going to be enough money to go around for everything. We have other massive needs, hurricane recovery, public safety, infrastructure. We, we don't have enough money in the existing budget to pay for all that stuff. And so unless there's some massive windfall to the state coming, there won't be huge investments in public education. There will be the same piddly little additional investments that we've seen under Republican leadership for the last few cycles. I have a, a sort of off-the-wall question that I've, I've seen some articles about it recently, but I haven't heard anyone really talk about it. Last year, there was a court decision, and it um, gave the ability to each individual state to enact gambling legislation sports gambling. sports gambling so i read uh, last year i think um representative hardister had introduced they were they were talking about a fantasy sports type right. um regulation but do you think there's any appetite for something like sports gambling so i think if you want to look at new revenue streams it's the potential things we would look at would be uh sports gambling um hemp as a new crop in the state marijuana legalization and then um, overhaul of the ABC system and whether there's new revenues to be gained if we do some type of modernization there. All those things could help the bottom line. None of those things are game changers in the way that some of our more fundamental taxes are. So none of them are get-rich-quick schemes. It's possible that we, out of those things, the one that we're probably the most likely to do this year would be some type of sports gambling approach. But I think that even that's unlikely. Okay. I know there are, are Republicans and Democrats working on trying to figure that out and see if there's a plan that they can put forward. Um, I, I think that the one of the things that happened when we picked up 10 Democratic seats is we beat a lot of moderate Republicans in urban and suburban areas. Right. The Republican House caucus got more conservative uh, ideologically, even though the, the House is better balanced between the parties. And so I think the conservative ideology in the Republican caucus is what makes it unlikely that we're going to see any 
major expansion of gambling or uh, marijuana or or alcoholic beverage tax revenues. Is to, to what degree is the House Caucus sort of they have to like toe the line for the more conservatives in the party? Because I know that's that that was uh, something with the United States House of right. Representatives, you'd have like a Freedom Caucus that wasn't huge, but it was enough that it right. would prevent them from doing things because they couldn't get enough votes. Is that the same? Yeah, I mean, this is dynamic? it is the same here. And it's what's commonly called the Hastert Rule, which former Speaker Dennis Hastert had put in place in Congress, which said he had to have a majority of his majority before he brings something to the floor. And the Republicans here have basically stuck to that same thing. So the best example was the House Bill 2 repeal. We knew there were 75 votes between Democrats who had 45 and Republicans who had uh, uh, 75. We knew that, that we could put together 75 votes total with 45 of us and 30 of them to do a repeal of House Bill 2. But because they couldn't get to 38 out of their 75 members who would agree to it, they could only get to like 35, they wouldn't bring a House Bill 2 repeal bill forward. And we ended up stuck on that for months and months and months. And that's because they stick to that majority of the majority, and that means that the the far-right ideological wing of their caucus has undue influence over what the entire agenda is for the state of North Carolina. If we could just get bills to the floor based on having 30 Democrats and 30 Republicans who have agreed on it, and then everybody else has got to take a hard vote, and, and it takes one more person to swing that vote for a yes, there's a lot more stuff that could get done here. But that's not the way Republican leadership has chosen to work. Have have there been a lot of big changes to the legislature as far as uh, procedural things in the past few years? And I, I think specifically I saw an article talking about, I think they're called floaters. People can yeah. jump around committees. That's a new thing for this year. So the, the re- in the past. That's but. right. The Republicans responded to our newfound uh, membership of us moving up to 55 members by uh, giving themselves more power by changing the rules. So they put their four top officers on every committee, essentially, so that the the committees, by our rules, have to have a balance, which means that on most committees, the Republicans should have one or two members, and there are Democrats. That's fair. I can agree with that. But now they've added four ex officio members who can come in and vote anytime they want, which means they can swing any committee vote that they want to do. That doesn't just impact Democrats. That impacts Republicans. Because even if Republicans are trying to work on something which they don't necessarily have full agreement with their leadership, but there is agreement across the body of the House, their leadership can bring those floaters in, those top members, to come in and squash anything that they don't want to move forward. So you think the leadership on the Republican side, we've got this opportunity where there could be some bipartisan processes and um, progress in the legislature, but they're, they're enacting these policies uh, procedurally to sort of discourage bipartisanship. I, I I was I gave a speech during our rules debate said that I was really disappointed that we have heard from Republican leadership uh, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year's session we heard them calling for more bipartisanship and then they created a set of rules that respond to the new democratic numbers by just hoarding power for themselves that's the opposite of bipartisanship so they're not living up to their own rhetoric the i I think more than health care and education and infrastructure what people want in the united states right now is they want a government that knows how to work together and is willing to work together across party lines 
and I do not see that from our Republican leadership so far this year. I hope that we can get there. Okay. Well, with you know, with, with our past election in 2018 and, and how that's changed things, and then looking forward to 2020, just with your last thoughts, what where do you see big things changing with the state, or what what are you looking for in the next? Maybe not just this session, but you know, after this last election and looking forward to the next one, what's sort of your big picture? Well, what we don't know is what the big issues will be, right? If we expand Medicaid, that takes it off the table. Educational price deal will be a big issue. Infrastructure probably will be. School construction needs will probably be a big issue no matter what. Um, what what else will be at the top of the heap? Will there be more hurricanes? Are we going to have some real conversation about uh, climate change, renewable energy? I mean, there's all kinds of things we could talk about. So that's what we, we can predict a little bit, but we don't really know. Uh, we also don't know... What will the maps be? Will there be a court ruling that gives us new legislative maps, and how does that impact what the next elections look like? Well, the one thing that we do know is that if Democrats want to lead North Carolina again, Democrats have to figure out how to do a better job of communicating with rural North Carolina, um, probably around pocketbook issues, and, uh, and, and trying to help rural North Carolinians understand that if what you want is rural broadband, Democrats have a plan. If what you want is cheaper health care, Democrats have an approach. Uh, and that we need to find some common ground there. That's going to take us doing some things differently, not just in terms of campaigning, but in terms of how Democrats kind of orient ourselves to those areas in general. And we're going to have to avoid some wedge issues along the way. We had a uh, we have a big wedge right now around um, who supports farming the most. And so we as Democrats need to, to understand that North Carolina has always had and will continue to have a significant uh, farming um, uh, economy and that farm families matter and they organize and they vote and they lead their communities and they do things like run the volunteer fire departments that you know have huge influence over kind of how communities come together in rural areas. And Democrats have to go and connect with those people uh, and figure out how to work with them on local issues. And they don't might not, might not vote for all of our candidates, but maybe we can get some local people that can do some things uh, and, and start to show that, that we, we can be a party that can lead for all of North Carolina again. That is our biggest challenge. Greg, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me on Politics NC.